Well, hello again. I'm Tony Payne, and welcome back to a new year of Two Ways News. Happy New Year to you, Tony. It's a little late, isn't it? But it's the first of our new year. Indeed. You, in fact, dear listeners, you may receive an episode before this one, one that Philip and Tullar recorded late last year that we haven't quite gotten out yet. So you may receive that one first this year, but this is our first conversation, Philip, back together. It's nice to see you again. It is good. Did you have a good holiday? We had a very good break. It was a time for rest and reading books and doing not much and playing a, the occasional game of golf, but it was a really nice break, a time to sort of think back over the year too and a, and a time to not think about anything at all, That's which is what a good holiday is in my view. And a good holiday involved the game of golf? Uh, it did. I'll tell you what it did involve. Um, we were down in Jindabyne. We did some beautiful walking in Jindabyne. And one day we were down there and one of the rangers said, you will keep your eye out for snakes. There's a lot of snakes around these days in the Kosciuszko National Park. And Alison and I have been holidaying there for many, many years. I've never seen a snake in the Snowy Mountains. And in my sort of view, snakes are things that happen on the coast and in forests, but not in these beautiful cold, bare wildernesses of the Snowy Mountains. But, of course, the next day I was walking down a track and trod on a snake. Oh, well done. My father used to find snakes on the golf course. Oh, yeah, right. very powerful seven-iron. That's <laughs> one thing a seven-iron's good for. Thankfully, the snake jumped one way and I jumped the other and, and no real harm came to either of us. But um, If it, it jumped, are you sure it's not a lizard? <laughs> oh, I, I'm very sure. <laughs> the, 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 I'm sure it was at least 10 feet long and, uh, yes, and black. Yes, venomous. <laughs> <laughs> but I survived the, I've survived the tale, and it's great to be back with you for a new year of Two Ways News. Good. And I read while Good. I was on my holidays, I read one of your newsletters that came out just recently saying that apparently this year we're going to be talking about Romans. Uh, is that how you found out? <laughs> <laughs> yes, of course. But that's I was, I was pleasantly surprised and excited. That sounds like a great idea. Well, I thought this year, rather than taking it week by week, we should have some kind of theme that is helpful for, for our friends who are listening in and reading to have a structure of what we're doing and especially to be able to encourage their non-Christian friends to listen in on episodes. And if we work through the ideas of Romans, we, it won't be preaching on Romans, but we work through the ideas of Romans, it really will be both encouraging for Christians and challenging for non-Christians. I think we can do both if we have Romans as a kind of backbone to our discussions. And so we'll use that as a kind of a, a middle C to keep coming back to as the year goes along, to, to do a Romans episode every yes. week, every second week, or regularly keep coming back to Romans. Yes, that's where it's at. Yeah. But it'll be the ideas that are found in Romans rather than an exegesis of Romans. Tremendous. Looking forward to that, Romans. Kind of like the interpretative key Martin Luther thought of the New Testament. I don't know if that's true, but it's certainly theologically one of the high points of the New Testament and expounds so much of the logic of the gospel um, as it goes through and its implications and applications. So Romans, I'm, I'm up for that. Sounds yep. like a great idea. It'll be good, I think. I've been preparing it for forums and for other things as well. And yes, you never walk away from doing some work on Romans feeling that was a waste of time. No, let's let's hope and pray it certainly won't be that this year as we come back to it. But now, as we start a new year, it's actually starting a little bit sadly for you, isn't it? Because uh, of the death in your family of your father-in-law last week. That's right. Um, Alex Churches, some of you listening will will know of Alex, Alex and Jill, that's my my wife's father, my wife's family. And Alex was 93. Uh, He was a fine Christian man. and he'd been battling with cancer, and uh, it uh, it finally took him away 
uh, just in the new year, um, just a couple of weeks ago. His funeral was yesterday. And it was a great funeral. Uh, it's a funny thing to talk about funerals as being great, but it is. It's so much easier to run a funeral for a Christian because there is this hope of the gospel that lies through it. But uh, I, I first met Alex when I was the chaplain at New South Wales Uni because he was an academic there, although that wasn't his starting point, was it, in life? Well, no. I mean, he started as a motor mechanic. Um, actually, he started as a fruit picker <laughs> and then a motor mechanic. Right. A, a floor sweeper at a motor mechanics workshop in Bathurst. Right. And so it was quite, in, in worldly terms, quite a, a career trajectory, Alex's. He started as a country boy at the very bottom, uh, became a, a motor mechanic, an apprentice, a gifted one, from there to a mechanical engineering degree, from there to a PhD and a, and a professorship, um, a lectureship in mechanical engineering, and one of the, the more respected engineers in Australia in his lifetime. Yes, and back in the days when professor meant professor. Mm-hmm. These days, every second Tom, Dick and Harry, who's anywhere in the university, is called a professor. But his seniority was a real and significant seniority, and... He was one of those who was willing to stand up and be counted as a Christian because on the campus from time to time we ran Christian outreach programs and we invited Christian academics to put their name to our advertisements and you could always count on Alex to do that, which cost in terms of people's regards and respects and your significance on the campus. Uh, There were quite a few who were willing to do it, but Alex was one we could always count on to stand for Christ, which is lovely. And he joined our church and was there for some time. I I like the comment that was said by the preacher yesterday. I won't mention the preacher because I don't like talking about my brother, but um, it was pointed out that Alex was saying, though the churchmanship of our church at the time was not to his taste, seeing young men and women being converted was more important than having a church which went with his taste. And that is just sheer Christian maturity, isn't it? He was a very godly man. He was very aware of his own shortcomings. Um, I I believe the last three words he uttered, perhaps, maybe not, but one of the last phrases he uttered in talking about his life was not good enough, three words, not good enough. He was aware that of his own, very much aware of his own shortcomings, and yet had a deep trust in the gospel of Jesus, even though he wasn't good enough, Mm. uh, and his life hadn't been good enough, even though, humanly speaking, he'd achieved more than many people will ever achieve. Yes. Um, And with integrity and honour, he had an order of Australia, Mm. and yet he was very aware of his shortcomings and of, of the power of the gospel. And that came out in his attitude to, to church life, um, not only being willing to accept innovations and changes that weren't to his taste, but in being a welcomer for years and years. The interesting thing about Alec, there's not many engineers who end up being welcomers. <laughs> and there's a stereotype in that, but you're there true. There is, and Alex was that stereotype. Mm. He was a man of things and science mm. and objects and mechanics. He wasn't the most easy, fluent, natural, relational, conversationalist in the world at all. And yet for years he led the welcoming at St Matthias and did an outstanding job because he was just committed to loving people and he just loved people. And he had something of that generation which uh, famous for our, our recently uh, uh, died queen, duty, mm. responsibility. Very much so. If he took a job, it was a duty for him to be responsible to do it, whatever the job was. 
uh, whether it was something that naturally pleasing to him or not. It was he was a man of of that uh, strength of character to fulfil his obligations, which is lovely. Quite so. And so it was sad to to say goodbye to him. It was sad that we've lost him and that he won't be with us now. It was a, a day of celebration and of joy because of the gospel, which we'll come to, I think, in our conversation today. But it certainly was sad and it brought back mem- memories for me, certainly of my own mother's death just two years ago. Yes. And I know this time of year in your family is a hard time of year. It's always hard for us because of our grandson who died uh, seven years ago now. Um, he died you know, on the Thursday of our CMS summer school. And so on, that, on the Thursday of summer school, the family all becomes aware again of uh, his death. And I noticed a couple found it quite difficult last week uh, when Thursday It comes came back out. at you, doesn't it? What it grief is back. like that. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, you're talking here of a... A boy of 16 and a man of 93 makes no difference. <laughs> Grief is there. You know, this silly thing people say about, oh, he had a good innings. That's ridiculous. It makes no difference how young or old death hurts. It's, I always think of Jesus. Jesus knew he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead. But when he stood at the tomb, we have that famous shortest verse in the English Bible, you know, Jesus wept because death is is awful. It, it is. always is awful. Even when you know you're going to bring him back from the grave, it's still awful that he died. When you confront it and when you, when you see it, when you stand next to it, uh, Alex uh, was in a nursing home with his wife in the same room and so the morning after his death we got the news. We came back from summer school. Uh, we all gathered in the room, and he was there still in the room with us as we talked yes. about him and, and grieved and prayed with Jill. And and death was right there in the room. He was lying there in his bed in the room, and it was him and it was not him, of course. Yes. And it is all. You can't look at it and say that that's good or it's natural or it's normal. You look at it and you, it's wrong, it's, it's a loss, it's terrible. It is terrible. It's interesting. After the funeral yesterday, I had half a dozen different conversations with different people about death in their families. There's different ones. Different ones recounted that which we don't normally talk about, about how we felt about, you know, my brother, my friend, my sister, my husband dying. Because it's, it's, it's common universal experience, and yet somehow... It's the one that we hate so much that we do not find it easy to talk about. And it's called grief and grieving. <laughs> this sadness, this sorrow that we have. But it's a, it's a strange sadness and sorrow, which is all the stranger because it's universal. Everybody has it. And yet, like death itself, it's qualitatively abnormal. It's an emotion and a feeling, an experience unlike any other, um, quite so. And uh, in some ways, hardly the cheeriest, in a sense, topic for us to begin our new year of podcasting on. But I think one that's worth digging into, because if we understand death and grieving and we understand why it's such a significant experience and and therefore what the gospel is and what the gospel says to it, well, that's a marvellous way to start our year, because... Uh, to start our year with the hope of the gospel in the face of its greatest enemy and our greatest enemy. Uh, there's perhaps no more important th- thing to say. It's, 
it's a subject we can't avoid. And as you say, it's always, it troubles all of us and it's always troubled humanity. It's been the great enemy, the last enemy. Yes. And, and grieving is a little sign that things are not right, that this is not normality. I just can't continue on. And so it's a kindness of God that we have grieving because it's a kindness to our minds that there's something wrong. Um, and it's a funny thing, grief. Funny is the wrong word, isn't it? But one of the ways of understanding its experience to me is like waves. You know, you... When you're walking out of the surf and you're walking up to the beach and suddenly a wave that you didn't expect bowls you over. That's what grief seems to me to be like. So I go for a week, I go for a month without even thinking of Nathan. Then when I think least about him, suddenly it all comes back. And though it eases as the years roll on, so you know, my mother died when I was 24 and so my sense of anguish and pain about my mother's death has diminished now that, in case people don't know, it's more than 50 years ago. Um, yet every now and then, suddenly, something happens and I'm reminded of my mother. Uh, and I feel again the, the loss of that most wonderful person, uh, as a mother is, such a wonderful person. So it never finishes, even though it eases and changes, but it comes upon me at the most unexpected times. Well, there's some expected times. Singing hymns. That's one of the expected. The, the, the hymns that I sing at a funeral get attached to the grieving experience. Uh, the music does that to us, doesn't it? Very much so. Uh, someone once said to me, just be careful about the, the hymns that you choose for your your mum's funeral or your parents' funeral, um, almost almost flippantly. If the hymns you're going to sing regularly at church, you'll have problems because they'll. it just comes back to you all the time. Every time you sing that hymn, it's like it's a it's a direct link to that experience. Very much so for me, certainly in the... In the times following, on uh, quite coincidentally, I'm sure it wasn't. I'm quite sure it wasn't planned. But on Mother's Day, the year the in the year following Mum's death, they happened to program one of the hymns that we'd sung at her funeral, and so I was. That was. I just had to go for a walk. Most of our family can't sing "It Is Well with My Soul," right? Because we sang it. Yeah. At Nathan's funeral. That's right. <laughs> it just it carries his name on it somehow. Yeah. Um, but. Why then? Let's move to a rational rather than the emotional. Why is it that we find death so offensive? Um, you see, uh, it's one of the few things in life which is, from its moment of existence, permanent. There's all kinds of things I can fix, all kinds of things I can have another go at, or I can learn, I can develop, I could try again, I could, uh, things that'll happen to me again, etc. But I'll never get my mother back. I'll never get my grandson back. I'll never get my father back. Once, once they've died, that's over. That's finished. They, they have gone and there is no more of the conversation, of the touching of the hand, of the, of the hearing the voice. It's, it, is, it is finished. And there's not, there's not all that many things in life like that. You know, I mean, I finished my university degree. Well, I can do another one. 
It's one school. Of, it's or... one of life's few true irreversibles. It's yes. it's once it's happened, it's the the loss is permanent, and that's part of its pain, isn't it? Yes, it's a it's a, it's a large part of its pain. It is, and death troubles us. You know, there's that lovely book by Luke Ferry on the short history of thought. I think it's called a French atheistic philosopher, in which he said, whatever philosophy you follow. You've got to deal with death. That's part of it. And he points out this sense of irreversibility. That, but he says that irreversibility of death makes life irreversible because all our life we're heading towards that full stop. It's not as if life is circular and just going on and on. There are certain aspects of it that are circular. You know, you get up and clean my teeth and so on. But... It's all heading towards one direction, and that direction is a full stop. And so life itself has this sense of we're going somewhere, which is, well, Epicurus would say nowhere. But, but then what's the meaning of life? It, it, it has meaning because it's going somewhere, and yet it's meaningless. It's almost like if it's a full stop, if I understand Ferry's view, it's almost like if it's a full stop, that's what makes the sentence prior to the, the words prior to that into a sentence because there's a full stop. Therefore, it must have some meaning since there is a period, there's a full stop. But of course, that doesn't necessarily follow. And that's, that's certainly what the writer of the Ecclesiastes, writer of Ecclesiastes says that because death happens to everyone, because it happens to the person who's lived a foolish, wasted, evil life, just as it happens to the righteous man, just as it happens to the beast of the field. Yeah. It happens to them all. So what's the point, says the writer to the Ecclesiastes. Yes. The writer of Ecclesiastes. And, and yes, you don't have to to go to modern existentialist philosophers or plays or poems to see the, the meaninglessness of life because of death. It's there in Ecclesiastes. You know, I've got an atheistic friend who was converted through the reading of Ecclesiastes because he said he had no idea that the Bible would contain such a book. He thought that this kind of thought was only modern thought, uh, part of the ignorance of uh, modern education without any Bible or without any history. But when he read Ecclesiastes, he said the Bible is saying what I know. Life is meaningless because of death. Because the beauty of the Bible says more than that. The life of the Bible gives you the reason for death. That is, it's the wage that sin pays. That's not a very nice reason, but it's a reason. There's a rationale for death that the Bible contains. It makes death meaningful in that sense, doesn't it? To yeah. say that death happens not randomly, not naturally, not accidentally. It happens within the purposes of God because of who we are and what we've done. Yes. And, and that sense of abnormality is what the Bible is teaching. That, that the sense of horror is what the Bible is teaching. That there is meaning and purpose, but then that meaning and purpose goes beyond death. Death itself introduces us into the very justice and judgment of God, which is bad news. So people are afraid of death. 
Hebrews 2 is really powerful about that, isn't it? About our fear of death. The fact that the devil holds the power of death means that we're in fear and that fear enslaves us. Hang on, I'll read the verse. It's, it's, a, yeah. it's a sobering verse. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, that's the son, likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. What does the devil have the power of death? What's the power of death that the devil possesses? Well, the accusation that he brings to us of, of sin and of our sin. And the trouble with the accusation is it's true. And so I stand in such fear of what will be contained in death that that by and large we move into stupidities. We move into the kind of, oh, it'll be all right, he's in a better place. Uh, you know, I can imagine he's up there with a beer in one hand and a girl on his lap and, you know, other inanities because we cannot cope with the idea that that in death is the judgment of God. I mean, we can cope with it for... Adolf Hitler or somebody like that, we think, well, he deserved more than just death. It's not good enough. He needs to be punished. But within ourselves or our family or friends, what people say at funerals is very often silly, frankly. Very true. And the, the sobering thing in this verse is that that fear of death, which at a funeral can lead us just to lose our minds, in our lives, all our lives says Hebrews, enslaves us. It, it forces us or constrains us to desperately avoid that which we know is coming. And in our fear, try to assuage and downplay and remove our fear, try to cope with our fear. How? How? What do we do? Well, at, at one level, uh, we just try and distract ourselves from it. I mean... Not talk about it. Yep, don't talk about it. Keep it at a distance. Find lots of euphemisms for it. Never say someone died. Say no. that someone passed. Yes. Um, never talk about death. Uh, yes. Even our animal, we, we euthanize. Yeah, rather than kill, rather yeah. than they died. <laughs> yes. He went to sleep. He went to sleep, yes. As opposed to we killed him, he died. We don't talk about it. And we self-medicate, of course. And so why is alcohol, why are alcohol and drugs a feature of, of every culture. Every culture has its way of dulling the mind, of, of easing the pain, of distracting ourselves, of just taking us out of the reality of life. Middle-aged men in Australia, um, alcohol is the way of coping with depression. Yeah. That's, and, of course, the crazy part is alcohol makes you depressive. It's so, not a stimulant. <laughs> no, it actually does the exact reverse of what they're trying to do, but it just deadens a deadened soul. Hmm. On the other hand, too, as a culture, we're obsessed with well-being and we're obsessed with health. I mean, humanity always has. Obsessed and youth. And youth and mm -hmm. of staying young and of trying to keep death at bay. And because of our prosperity and our wealth and our technological advances, we pour enormous resources into trying to kid ourselves that that inevitable judgment, that inevitable end is not facing us and coming for us. We try to keep it at bay through the whole well-being industry, uh, the whole uh, health and, um, and exercise and, and athleticism and all those sorts of things. I think, too, we, we also try to keep that fear or cope with that fear 
by trying to erect something or build something that will outlast us. I think the desire to be someone, to create something, to build something, to leave a legacy uh, is for many people the thing that drives them, that can I perhaps produce something that will be me and that people will remember me for? Yes, and at funerals I hear people saying the silly thing, you know, you'll be remembered forever. Actually, you won't. Actually, you won't. And that's <laughs> something else that Ecclesiastes says, doesn't yes, it? Yes, you won't be remembered forever. You won't be remembered. But this great thing, not only will you not be remembered in a very few years hence, but this great, wonderful thing that you built that you thought was so fantastic, it'll be passed on to some other idiot who will make a, make a mess of it or waste it. Yes. Um, and so we desperately try and build things. I think, too, that's... I mean, families and children and our love for children and families are a good thing and a wonderful gift of God. But it's interesting, our obsession with our children, our desire to build everything into our children, um, to live through our children, to to worship our children, is a variety of the same thing, I think. Yes. I, I was pondering the other day. I've forgotten why. I'm sorry. But uh, I was thinking about my grandmother and her sister who lived together and were part of my childhood. And they used to talk about their mother as Queenie. And there was a picture of Queenie. And apart from that, I know absolutely nothing about her. <laughs> I don't even know her real name was. It could have been Queenie for all I know. Now, that's only three generations back. Mm. And that woman's life was part of the reason why I'm alive today. I've got really no knowledge. It passes very quickly, mm. very quickly. But, of course, the beauty of the gospel is that we're released from this. I mean, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so the terrific breakthrough of the meaninglessness of Ecclesiastes and the fear of death and the slavery to the power of Satan, etc., of Hebrews, the terrific breakthrough comes in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, which transforms not just our eternity, the giver of eternal life, but transforms our life now and our ability to deal with death now as well. You see, the favourite passage I would preach on at a funeral, if I'm just asked to, in one sense for the congregation, because the funeral's for the living, not the dead, is 1 Thessalonians 4. Let me read to you part of it. But we do not want to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. And so he goes on. It's a wonderful concept, isn't it? We grieve, but not like those who have no hope. Because our hope is found in the resurrection of Jesus. For as surely as he has risen from the dead, we too will be risen from the dead. It doesn't do away with grief. We're still sorrowed by death. We're still disappointed by it. We're still saddened by it. We're still are bereft of our friend, our father, our child who has died. It's right for us to grieve. But ours is not a hopeless grief. Ours is a grief of reassured confidence in the future. When I was a young man, I used to take funerals 
regularly. I was at the church at Manly and a big church and a big community church and so there'd be a couple of funerals every week and so as the assistant minister I'd be taking one of them or so every, pretty well every week I was taking funerals. There were some strange things I learned as a young man about them. One was how silly were the comments people made in their attempt to deal with their grief without that hope. Another was most funerals are old people and there are very few people who attend, 20, 30. You go to a young person's funeral, there can be three, four, five hundred, but they are rare. Um, it's the old people who die in a sense of obscurity, basically. And thirdly, when you're at a non-Christian funeral, it is, it is bleak. It is miserable. It is unhappy. It's despairing. It is despairing. And the only way in which they can overcome the despairing is doing silly things, making silly comments. You know, we're going to let let balloons go or we're going to, you know... Play Frank Sinatra singing I Did It My Way. Yes. Yet again. Yes. And it's just silly. It really struck me at at Alex's funeral uh, just yesterday, not only the very fact you just mentioned, nearly every old person's funeral you go to, there's somewhere between 20 and 20, 30 people. It was nearly 150 people at Alex's funeral. Yeah. Because of the Christian community he was part of and because of the people whose lives he'd touched over so many faithful years of service. And that's a man in his 90s. Yeah. Whereas... Most men in their 70s or 80s, it'll only be 30. The other fascinating thing and wonderful thing about Christian funerals, and yesterday was a great example, is we sing yes. at Christian funerals. Yes. And the funeral director at the funeral yesterday uh, said to us afterwards, look, thank you, it's been great to, be, to serve you and help you. And I just have to say, I've been to a lot of funerals. I've never heard singing like that. That's right. That's right. As a young curate... One of the first funerals I ever conducted said, we'll stand and sing Abide With Me, which was the standard hymn that in those days. That was the days. standard funeral hymn for a very long time. It was a solo. Mm. I was the only person singing. I couldn't. It was so embarrassing. It was so difficult. But the congregation didn't know even a basic hymn to sing. Yesterday we sang, What a Friend We Have in Jesus. Yeah, lovely. And Great is Thy Faithfulness. Yes. And I was, I was standing down the front with the family and the volume of the singing was, was truly moving. Uh, you had nearly 150 mostly Christian believers, mostly people who've been Christians a long time, um, singing in thankfulness and praise and confessing their, their belief in this hope that we grieve, but we grieve with hope and we grieve with thanksgiving. Now, thanksgiving's a really interesting one, isn't it? Because it's, what, do we th what do we think? Who do we think? How can we think? And yet, th I mean, it was a service of thanksgiving, wasn't it? It was. And so the fundamental question comes with thanksgiving. Who are you thanking? It's such an important thing, isn't it? It's and if there's no one to thank, there's no reason to rejoice. No. But if we know who, to whom we're giving thanks, the great God whose faithfulness uh, is behind everything that happens and behind this life and behind everything that's been achieved in this life, who's been given everything in this person's life and who is a friend to us in Jesus to, 
to take us through the fear of death and to and to joy and life and, and everlasting hope on the other side, then you can give thanks yes. and then you can sing. And to again bring up the contrast that comes, you see, you ask the average Australian about thanks and they say, oh, we've got so much to thank. You know, we, so much to be thankful for. So much to be thankful say, for. Yeah. That's right. And you say, okay, who are you going to thank? And the answer is, my lucky stars. Do they really believe they've got lucky stars? <laughs> you know, it's as silly as the things that are sometimes said at funerals. Yeah, that's right. Whereas our Thanksgiving for Alex was genuine. We can thank Alex for the lovely things he did, but we know, and he knew, that the things he did came from God. And so we could genuinely thank God for Alex. And we can sing that in the praises, we can say it with our lips, and we know it in our hearts and minds. And that then changes the nature of our grief. It, in one sense, heightens it because we know what we've lost. But in another sense, it lessens it, it enables us to cope with it because we know that it was God at work in him and our God is still there at work in us. Philip, thanks for talking today with me about death and grief and difficult subjects like that. And it's great to pause in the context of, of real grief. And dear listeners, uh, we, I'm sure that as you listen, that you've all had grief in your life of one kind or another. And I hope these words we've, we've, we've talked about today and the gospel of hope uh, in the Lord Jesus Christ will have helped you think again and think more uh, Christianly and in a more Christ-centered way about the inevitability of loss and of grief. Uh, as always, if you'd like to comment or ask questions about anything we've said today, please get in touch. We really do love hearing from you. You can um, just hit reply to the email version of this podcast that comes out with the transcript. You can just hit reply and that comes through to us. Or if you're just listening on the podcast, you can email me personally. Email me at tonyjpain at me.com um, and we'll get all those requests. And I do reply to them. I must confess and must apologize over the last sort of six to eight weeks while I've been away. I'm sure some have slipped through that I haven't replied to. My apologies. But normally we do reply to all our emails. Philip, how about you close for us in prayer? That would be a great Certainly. thing. Heavenly Father, we do thank you this day for, for Alex Churches and his life lived in service of you and your people. We thank you, Father, for the whole church's family and for the privilege and opportunity of gathering together yesterday to remember Alex, to honour him and to thank you for him. We pray, Father, for their grief as they go through these next days, especially his widow, Jill, that you would help her to cope with these very painful, difficult days for her. But we also pray for others who are grieving, Father. We thank you that you understand our grief and our need to be sad and sorry for this dreadful thing of death. But we thank you even more for sending your Son into this world to pay the price for our sin and to rise over death, conquering death, who lives forever and through whom you give us eternal life. And we thank and praise you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.